Hello, my friends. Three elections last night. Some lessons to be learned from all of them. I hope you enjoy today's podcast as I go through them. But before I do, let me invite you to become a Rebel News Plus subscriber. Just go to rebelnews.com and click subscribe. That'll get you the video version of this podcast, plus access to David Menzies' weekly show, Sheila Gunn-Reed's weekly show, and most importantly, it helps keep the rebel strong. Okay, here's today's podcast. Tonight, three interesting votes last night. I'll give you the news from two federal by-elections and a provincial election. It's October 27th, and this is the Angela Man Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say is the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Saskatchewan voted last night, no big surprise, the Sask party dominated the race, which is quite something. It's their fourth win in a row. I remember when that province was called Red Square. It was just rock-solid NDP forever, it seemed like, not anymore. The culture of the whole place has been changed. It's like a change in the DNA. There are 61 seats in the legislature, and the Sask party, last I checked, they're still counting some ridings, um, won 50 of them to just 11 for the NDP. That's it's pretty mini NDP. What's interesting to me is that the third place party, it's not the Liberals, who, when I checked last night, I should look at it now, but it only had 309 votes. So maybe it's up to 310 votes. Votes in the whole province. That's 0.08%. To be fair, most Liberals actually folded into the Sask party years ago. Same with the Rump Conservative Party, they only got 2%. The Greens got just over 2% also. I think Saskatchewan is sort of sick of environmentalists these days. So who came in third after the Sask Party and the NDP? Well, the newly formed Buffalo Party. It's still very tiny, just under 3%, but they were only just created and they only ran in a few seats. And despite that, they got the third most votes in the whole province. In Estevam, last I checked, they got about 25% of the vote, 20% in Cypress Hills. For a party that was just invented, running against a popular conservative incumbent, the SAS party, is very interesting to me. But the news out of Saskatchewan is the province is staying the course as perhaps the most conservative province in the country. It was sort of pitiful to watch Alberta's destroyer, Rachel Notley, try to convince Saskatchewan to do to itself what she had done to Alberta. Uh, they gave her a hard pass. Yet. No thanks. No thanks to your carbon tax and your crazy job killing. I love this zinger by Brad Wall, the former leader of the Sask party who retired after the last election. He says, I see Ryan Miley is endorsed by a former Alberta premier who brought in a carbon tax. For what it's worth, Scott Moe is endorsed by the former Saskatchewan premier who fought the carbon tax. That being Brad Wall. That's a nice tweet. But let's turn for a moment to Toronto. In Toronto Centre, the most liberal of all the ridings, the riding Bill Morneau scuttled away from in disgrace as he took the blame for the We Charity fiasco. Uh, the Liberals won again. Uh, in the last two elections, Bill Morneau got almost exactly 57% both times. I mean, it's literally called Toronto Centre. It's like what the Wild Rose riding is to the Conservative Party. But they were chopped down a bit by 15%. They still won it with around 42%. A win is a win. A win by a single vote is a win. But Liberal candidate and 9-11 truther Marcy Ian 
came within striking distance of losing, I think, Annamie Paul, the newly minted Green Party leader, roared ahead of everyone else to clock in at just under 33% chance. Again, there may be some straggler votes. So that's up 25% from what the Green Party got last time. That's got to be the best the Green Party has ever done in Ontario, probably ever. If you look at the results, Annamie, uh, the Green Party leader, took about 5% each from the NDP and the Tory uh, campaigns, but she took, it looks like, 15% from the Liberals. That is very interesting. By the way, if I were that empty suit Jagmeet Singh, I'd be worried about the Greens. And if I were Trudeau, I'd be a bit worried about them too, especially in places where uh, 5 or 10% shaved off of them could tip it to the Conservatives. But look a bit north to York Centre, which is part of the greater Toronto area, where another Liberal MP resigned to cause a by-election. The Liberal won this riding last night too, but it was much closer. The Tory and the Liberal were trading places for much of the night, and in the end, the Liberal won by only the margin of voter fraud. You know, less than 1,000 votes different or so. Not bad for the Tories. Again, the NDP seems to be the loser. Wins are wins, but so far this year, the elections have strongly favored the incumbents. The Sask Party in Saskatchewan. BC's NDP turning a minority coalition government into a strong majority. New Brunswick's Tories doing the same. The pandemic has strengthened incumbents, at least in Canada, except Trudeau, maybe. I don't know, maybe it's because these are just by-elections, so voters can take risks knowing that the shape of the entire national government is not at stake. But still, it's not as encouraging for Trudeau as the daily media party Love-In would suggest. And it makes me all the more curious and excited about what may come in seven days in the United States election. I can't even believe it's upon us. Last night was the night where Amy Coney Barrett Trump's third Supreme Court pick was sworn in by Clarence Thomas. What a sight. The left was spitting bullets. They were so furious. They were so mad, even though it's, um, you know, that's how the Constitution does it. As the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said, the president doesn't stop being president a year before the end of his term just because he's campaigning. He is still the president for four years. He still gets to nominate judges. Listen to RBG herself. The president is elected for four years, not three years, so the power that he has in year three continues into year four, and maybe some members of the Senate will, will wake up and appreciate that that's how it should be. Okay. But boy, were the sore losers out in force, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was one of a growing number of Democrats who stated that the Democrats win the election, They'll want to rig the court by expanding its size so greatly so they can pack it with a bunch of liberals to turn it into a partisan court. That's also something Ruth Bader Ginsburg specifically opposed. Term limits, what are you worried about? Well, what was the other? You mentioned... Adding the number, changing the number of justices. Oh, yes, yes. There is no fixed number in the Constitution. So this court has had as few as five, as many as ten. Nine seems to be a good number, and it's been that way for, for a long time. I have heard that there are some people on the Democratic side who would like to increase the number of judges. I think that was a bad idea when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to pack the court. His plan was for every justice who stays on the court 
past the age of 70, the president would have authority to nominate another justice. If that plan had been effective, the court's number would have swelled immediately from 9 to 15, and the president would have six appointments to make. You mentioned before um, the court appearing partisan. Well, if anything would make the court appear partisan, it would be that. One side saying, when we're in power, we're going to enlarge the number of judges, so we will have more people who will vote the way we want them to. What is it, this fury on the left? I mean, there's a fury on the right, too, but the threats to rip up the Constitution, threats to burn down cities, literally burn them, that's all on the left. Show me a conservative protest that's been violent. Show me a Republican loser so sore he wants to rip up the Constitution just because he loses an election. Whether it's about the courts or the Electoral College or whatever, I've never seen such sore losers of the Democrats. And if Trump wins again next week, which is a possibility, you will see riots and probably even, I don't know, suicides on the left. Some of them really believe what they're saying. I get it. Look, everything's at stake. But at the end of the day, there should be some life outside of politics. Alas, to the left. The personal is political. Every single thing in life must be political and must be fought over. And since many choices are on, off, yes, no, since many things are a zero-sum game, like there was only one person who was added to the Supreme Court last night, and it was Trump's pick. The daily ebb and flow of politics, the small losses feel unbearable to the left, which I believe has grown to hate America itself. Hate it because they want to change it, but hate it because it does not seem to want to be changed as they want it to be. I believe it is more than just a talking point when Donald Trump Jr. points out, if you see an American flag on a house, you pretty much know it's Republican, not Democrat. I'm afraid that's largely right these days, and it was not always that way. Here's an interested, uh, interesting animated graph from the liberal Pew Research showing that over the last 20 years, Americans have become more divided. They're not just on a spectrum. They don't just disagree with each other in incremental ways. They are totally apart. They just don't see things the same. There's little overlap anymore. That's why next week's U.S. election will feel so calamitous, especially to the left if Trump wins. Stay with us for more.
incredibly, that video is not some citizen journalist showing how Ontario's provincial police are absolute doormats to, in the face of thugs, masked thugs on the street. That video was actually deliberately and proudly published by the OPP commissioner who boasted about it, who said it was exemplary, who said it was proud of the law enforcement. There was no law enforcement there. And I wonder if he would have demanded that his police sit still and not defend themselves if the windows had been smashed through and if it was their faces being hit with lacrosse sticks and rocks. They didn't even say the word stop. They sat there and took a beating. That was a crime you saw, an assault on property, destruction of property. There were many crimes there and they sat and smiled and the top cop was proud and the message was sent, Caledonia is a lawless zone. Message sent to both sides. The criminals who now know they can do just about anything and law-abiding citizens who know the cops will do just about nothing. And joining us now is our own David Menzies who was at that Caledonia showdown. David, the fact that the OPP commissioner was proud of that inaction mm. is actually much more disturbing to me than the fact that a couple of young thugs smashed a car. Thugs are thugs. Where's the top cop? It is disturbing, but we have to go back to the history of Caledonia, Ezra. Um, this really ignited uh, in 2006. And you've got to look at the players at the time. The premier was Dalton McGuinty. Now, Dalton McGuinty, as the opposition leader, the liberal opposition leader, was constantly, throughout his career, badgering M the Mike Harris PCs about the handling of the Ipperwash protest in which the native Dudley George was shot and killed by a member of law enforcement. A, a few years go by, Dalton McGuinty is now the premier, and suddenly Caledonia uh, breaks out. The premier is now in the position where, oh my gosh, I can't be seen as being heavy-handed towards the natives. This is how I built my street cred in the Ontario legislature, being a champion for native justice. So it was paralysis by analysis. The OPP commissioner of the day, uh, Ezra, was Julian Fantino. Previously, a really big law and order kind of top cop. That went out the window. It was stand down, stand down, stand down. It was to treat the natives as the victims and the townspeople as the aggressors, when in fact it was the actual opposite way. And so that's why you had kidnappings, physical assaults, arson, car theft, houses being burned down, you name it, Ezra. The police turning a blind eye, the police telling residents, phoning 911, sorry, we can't go there, that's the no-go zone. <laughs> the no-go zone. Meanwhile, uh, I think the ultimate tragic point of how um, identity politics was ruling the day in Caledonia was when there were citizens marching to have a peaceful protest, came to the roadblock where there was all kinds of anarchy behind the roadblock, and they planted Canadian flags in a vacant lot, and they were arrested and handcuffed, and they were charged with disturbing the peace. When did that happen? That was in that period from, I, I'm going to guess, probably 2007 mm. onward. It was, you know, before 2010. Um, I'm not sure exactly of the date. And I will say this to, to your audience, Ezra. The late great journalist Christy Blatchford wrote a masterpiece about these dark days of Caledonia starting in 2006. It's called Helpless. Mm. And believe me, what a perfect title. If you were a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen, 
you were helpless because of the premier of the day and the OPP commissioner of the day. Yeah, what a disgrace. Um, now, I understand you were out there recently. Uh, what did you see when you were out there? Yeah, well, we were attracted uh, to this area as, as, as well as um, other mainstream media elements. And I, I knew the mainstream media wasn't going to cover this fair and square. The Toronto Star, they have a fellow writing this. His title, I'm not making this up. He's the social justice reporter. So you know where he's going. In fact, one of the angles of his story isn't the occupation of Mackenzie Meadows, the housing development that has been stillborn for years now. But he went off on this tangent that of the mayor of Caledonia having a conflict of interest because his daughter has a deposit down on one of the houses. Well, yeah. She's paying, paying full market price. She's put down the deposit. She's waiting for a house that might never be built, right? Well, there's no scandal there, but, but that's the scandal. Not the fact that Skylar Williams, you know, the, the leader, right, the, the, the chief agitator, I would call it, the fellow who says, I have time to um, break bread with anybody, uh, break bread or break heads. Because when we went there in August, uh, Ezra, uh, Skylar uh, was supposed to arrange a meeting with us. We went out to Mackenzie Meadows, where you cannot go now because they got an excavator and they ripped up the road. Hmm. You know, thousands and thousands of dollars of damage. Even a four by four, I don't think, could get over that hump. And um, basically, when we went there to speak, a mob approached us. Our bodyguard said, time to go. Uh, there's going to be no powwow here, and we left. So we were, um, what um, got our uh, interest up was the fact that there was lots of social media chatter that um, BLM and Antifa people... That's were, Black Lives Matter. Ba Black Lives Matter, thank you, uh, were bussed in from Toronto, which they were. These are the paid professional protesters who don't want a peaceful resolution. Right. They love anarchy, and they joined the native agitators, right? And it shouldn't, it's not all natives that are, you know, gung-ho with this movement, I should point out. And the idea, the threat was, we are marching past the OPP barricade, right down Argyle Street to the bridge, and we are going to do whatever we want. We are going to steal what we want, burn what we want, destroy what we want. So we heard this and we said, we got to go there. Thankfully, it was all bark, no bite. They marched up to the police barricade and uh, they were met by town, uh, townspeople, who I should point out, Ezra, off camera, said, we are sick and tired of this. This is enough is enough. We have to take back our town. Not one, except for one individual, Mr. Bradbury, would come on camera because they are scared to death of being doxxed and potentially having their house burned down, which has happened in the past in Caledonia. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, is there any political entity, a mayor, a premier, a police chief, a prime minister, a party leader, uh, who is for the rule of law there? Do you know if the federal conservatives have said anything? What, I mean, I presume the head of the OPP speaks for Doug Ford. Yep. Has he said anything? Is there anyone in the entire Canadian political ecosystem who is against this lawlessness? This is the time for Doug Ford, instead of having a press conference, which he did the other day, where he goes before a podium and does the John Tory line, like when parks are being taken over by anarchists, this is unacceptable, and does nothing. Yeah. This is the time for Doug yeah, it's Ford. It's unacceptable, but he accepts it. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. Thank you. That's the bitter irony, isn't it, Ezra? This is the time for Doug Ford to say, this is unacceptable, and we are for law and order, and we have to restore law. If you want to talk about these land claims, come to the 
the government. This is how it's done in civilized countries. We sit down at a table and negotiate. If you don't like how the negotiations go or you lose, you know what you do? You go to the courts. And we have seen in recent decades, Ezra, natives going to the Supreme Court and winning significant decisions. The courts aren't necessarily stacked against them. Show us your evidence and you'll have a fair hearing. Uh, that's what has to happen. He can't, Premier Ford just can't say it's unacceptable and tell the OPP commissioner yeah. that if it's native violence, stand down, stand down, stand down. That is despicable. Well, maybe if Doug Ford pretends that those masked, rock-wielding, stick-wielding thugs were corner restauranters oh, or yes. yoga shop owners without a mask on, yeah. maybe then he'd deploy the police to start swinging some batons. Uh, or maybe on the other foot, the restaurants, gyms, and yoga studios of Toronto that are shut down, maybe they should just fly a Mohawk flag and uh, be done with all this Doug Ford uh, meddling. Isn't that sad? But how true is that? And I can tell you, as Caledonia is a beautiful little town. I mean, physically, it's gorgeous. It's on the, the river and, you know, but you can tell there is a different vibe on both sides. First of all, I was told by the locals, including Mr. Bradbury, these new um, anarchists, these pro native protesters, this is a different breed. Unlike 2006 and the years ahead, they're not willing to talk. They're all about, they want violence. They don't want a resolution. And it is dangerous to go into their encampments. Um, secondly, on the other hand, the townspeople, especially with the Wuhan virus lockdown, so many people have lost jobs. People are on the brink. There have been bankruptcies. Can you imagine, Ezra, the tension mm. that you have endured months of this garbage, and now you have these agitators saying, what little you have left, what little that you've got mortgaged, we're going to cross a line, and we're going to burn it down because we can burn it down because it's based on some ancient land claim that we don't have tangible evidence uh, to, to present to government or court. It is an outrageous situation, and it can only be dealt with by the rule of law. If the OPP can't do it, then you've got to bring in the army. Yeah. Well, we know Trudeau won't do that. Yeah. I tell you, one day a vigilante will fill this void, and I don't look forward to that. In fact, I, I dread that. But someone will be pushed to the limit if they can't rely on the rule of law, if the police won't even pr protect themselves, let alone private citizens. Someone pushed to the brink by this perfect storm you've described will defend themselves. I mean, that it's an ancient law. Uh, Semaine's case, a man's home is his castle. It yes. applies here in Canada as well as over the United Kingdom where the law came hundreds of years ago. And one day someone will fight back and it will, it will be on the head of Doug Ford and the OPP and every provincial government and federal government. Harper didn't fix it either, yeah. going back 14 years. Well, David, I'm glad you were there, and I'm glad you were safe, and you took a couple of security guards with you, too. Uh, and we needed them, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, in a way, we didn't, because it didn't uh, break into the kind of horrible, violent, Portland-style protest we right. expected. But had it, uh, we would have needed those guys, and we certainly didn't get to Mackenzie Meadows. That is the new no-go zone in yeah. Caledonia. And you were there before when your security guy says, let's get out of here. Back so in August. Absolutely. Whenever you go up there, you got to take security, and I know you are. I, absolutely. I agree with that, yeah, sir. Yeah, all right. Okay. We're, and we're the only <laughs> media who has to hire security, because if you're with the Toronto Star <laughs> yeah. or the CBC, <laughs> and if you're pro-anarchy, pro-riot, well, the rioters aren't going to hurt you. They'll, they'll help you, because you're actually a media propagandist for them. Stay with us more. <laughs>
Hey, welcome back to my monologue. Last night, Gabriel writes, this isn't just a party issue. Conservatives have done harsh lockdowns too. Rob Ford, Boris Johnson. I have a feeling the NDP and BC will be heinous and harsh despite being moderate when they had a minority government. You really don't know who you can trust, if anyone, right now. You're so right. I mean, look at Boris Johnson, and he's terrible. Maybe the Welsh first minister, who's a Labourite, is worse. I think the worst in the world is Dan Andrews, the Labour leader in the Victoria state in Australia. But any politician loves power. And bizarrely, enough of the population loves being bossed around that they're supporting these authoritarian leaders. So I think that's what Doug Ford likes. He enjoys the power. He enjoys the praise of pro-big government media. Um, And he's saying, well, it's not hurting me in the polls. I think left or right politicians are all our enemy these days. Bruce writes, I hope and pray that the hypocrisy of the ruling class ticks off as many normal citizens as possible. The fact that the maskless photo went viral proves people see the double standard of our rulers. Oh, exactly. None of them mean it. Um, Trudeau broke four different lockdown rules uh, in Easter, moments after telling us all to stay home. Uh, The health ministers or public health officers of places as far apart as Scotland and New Zealand broke their lockdowns. They don't actually mean it. They don't live like they believe it. It's like Al Gore flying around on his private jet talking about global warming. It's how you act that matters more than what you say. On my interview with Joel Pollack, Paul writes, As for various groups for Trump, notice that the left have to manufacture what free people do voluntarily. Nobody needs to pay ethnic groups to show their love for President Trump because it's from the heart. The same applies to Yahoo Nation. No paid protesters there. You're exactly right. And you know, we have a bit of a divide in Canada because Quebec, which is a quarter of the country, you know, different language. So we don't even follow what they're doing. But the largest anti-lockdown protests in Canada have been in that province. And I just saw a news headline that 200 gym owners plan to defy the law and stay open. Uh, That kind of solidarity in dissident opposition to the government, we don't see that in Anglo-Canada. So I salute the French. All right, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here in Rebel World Headquarters, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Thank you.